This Friday, people all across Asia will begin to celebrate the Lunar New Year. Now, you may also know it as the Chinese New Year, but people will also be celebrating it in Vietnam, Korea, and of course, here in Taiwan. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So, and we are going to be celebrating the New Year in our show today. But first, let's take a look at what's been on our radar this week. Over 200 people have fallen ill in China in a coronavirus outbreak centered in the city of Wuhan. As of Tuesday, four Chinese patients had died. Cases have also been reported in Japan, South Korea, and Thailand. One case has already been confirmed in Taiwan, and with the busy Lunar New Year travel season coming up, the government is not taking any chances. It has set up an epidemic response command center. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control says that people who develop symptoms within two weeks of travel to China will be quarantined. The Taiwan Stock Exchange had its last day of trading in the lunar year of the pig on Monday. It has been a good year for stocks. Strong buying lifted the exchange's benchmark weighted index by 22% for the year. Trading will recommence on January 30th after the holiday concludes. The Taiwan Action Party Alliance has disbanded just months after it was formed. The pro-independence party was founded in August and had links to former President Chen Shui-bian. After failing to win any legislative seats in Taiwan's recent elections, the party decided to dissolve on Monday. Taiwan's Marine Corps Special Service Company is preparing to defend Taiwan over the Lunar New Year holiday. In a recent exercise, members of this elite team conducted a mock rescue of hostages on a bus. While the rest of Taiwan takes a break, these soldiers will stand guard, ready for anything. And under the radar this week, cleaning the house before the Lunar New Year is a long-standing tradition. But doctors say you should be careful of your posture while you work. One doctor says that the number of patients complaining of lower back pain jumps 20 to 30 percent around the time of the annual New Year's cleanup. Before the Chinese New Year, we're doing something a little different today. We have a red packet, and people usually give red packets full of money. But yeah. we're not giving each other money today. No. <laughs> I have money in my oh, you can for give you. it to me if you want. <laughs> we're giving each other a lucky phrase, which is what uh, people like to say during the Chinese New Year. So we're going to try to guess each other's lucky phrase in Chinese. We will translate it, of course. Okay. Ready to guess? Yes. Andrew Ryan is smart. Very good. So this means New Year, New Hopes. So I just want to wish everyone a year full of hope. Um, whatever you, new plans you have or anything you want to renew, I hope your year is full of hope. That's great, Nally. I yeah, feel the this, spirit. You can use this every year. You can use this one every year, too. Really? You ready for I, this? It's not a rat-oriented one? Okay. <laughs> it is a rat-oriented okay. one. All right. Su, it's a rat. Su qian, su bu wan. Su dao, so <laughs> so, so let me yeah, let yeah, me explain this to you. It. So basically, it says, uh, "May you count your money until your hands uh, you get, get so, a, a, a cramp. cramp in your hands." That'd be nice. That means a lot of money. There. It means like, may you have so much money that your hands cramp up just counting all that money. And one thing I want to point out here is the first word uh, is "shu," which means "lao shu," which is rat. And so they've replaced the word to count with a homonym, which means rat. All right. If we can do both these things this year, I'd be pretty good, huh? All right. Lots of money, lots of hope. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hang these on the shelf. All right. We're going to get started now, though, with a Lunar New Year-related Taiwan Explained. 
According to the Chinese zodiac, this coming year is the year of the rat, which is the first in a cycle of 12 years. And that's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. Okay, so you have 60 seconds to tell us what all that means. Okay. Ready? Yes. Go. All right. If you look at the hongbao, the lucky red envelopes that people are giving each other this year, you'll notice that many of them feature rats, and some even also have cats. But where are the cats in the Chinese zodiac? Well, if you look at the twelve animal years, you'll see that the rat is first, and there is no cat. So, how could the smallest animal possibly come first? Well. Legend has it that the Jade Emperor held a party and invited all the animals, and he based the order of the zodiac on the order in which they arrived. Now the animals had to cross a river in order to get there, and as you know, cats and rats they hate water. So the rat tricked the ox into giving him a ride, and the cat decided to go along as well. But then the rat pushed the cat into the water, and then just before they arrived at the party. The rat jumped down ahead of the ox, becoming the first sign in the zodiac, and that's why cats and rats are mortal enemies to this day. Nice job, Andrew! Perfect timing. <laughs> Thank you. So this is the Chinese zodiac. What do people say about people born in the year of the rat? That's a great question. I actually want to show you some famous rats. I hope they won't take offense.、Uh, you can see Scarlett Johansson. We've got The Rock. Dwayne Johnson, of course, Pope Francis, as you can tell by that picture, Rosa Parks,、uh, and Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook fame.、Uh, now, what are these people like? You can decide whether you believe this or not, but they're said to be clever. Quick thinkers, successful. I think all these people are definitely successful,、uh, but content with living the peaceful and quiet life. I don't、mm, think that's true. I don't true. think they do.、Um, <laughs> also, they're said to be wasteful and quick to temper, but also creative and honest, ambitious and generous. That's very interesting. I wonder if they know that they are rats. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you should ask them. I'm not going to ask them. <laughs> So, if you want to know what Chinese zodiac animal you are, you can check out our show notes below. And that is our Taiwan Explained for the week. So, how do you prepare for the New Year celebrations? Well, of course, you need to buy some New Year goods. And today, we are going to give you some tips from the people who actually sell those goods to help you with your New Year shopping. Pistachios, peanuts, mushrooms, mullet roe, and dried scallops are traditional items eaten over the Lunar New Year. With the holiday just around the corner, consumers are scurrying to the markets to stock up. One purveyor of such goods tells us that pistachios should have a bright green color and should be bought in shell. They should be easy to open, otherwise they'll be smaller and more bitter. For peanuts, on the other hand, the ones with a nice white color will have the best flavor. This purveyor tells us that consumers should buy mushrooms from Taiwan. They should be bright in color and give off a pleasant aroma. Any other mushroom is not worth buying. Mullet roe is another holiday favorite. Under the sun, mullet roe should give off a bright orange, semi-translucent tint. Dried scallops should not only smell good but also look and feel nice too. Follow these steps when buying holiday goods, and you'll be a-okay. Now, popular gifts during the new year include things like gift boxes of food, tangerines, or bottles of alcohol. But if you want to try something a little bit different, you could go with flowers that contain a special message. And don't worry, there's plenty of time left because there is one market in Taipei which is open 24 hours in the run-up to the Lunar New Year. Around the Lunar New Year holiday, flower sales see a big uptick. 
That's because certain flowers are thought to symbolize a year of luck. To deal with this big seasonal demand, Taipei's Jianguo Holiday Flower Market is staying open for 108 hours straight. From midnight on January 20th to noon on January 24th, Lunar New Year's Eve, there will be flowers around the clock. It's important to know what kind of flowers to buy, since different kinds of flowers symbolize different kinds of luck. For instance, the Zanzibar gem, known as the money tree in Chinese, represents wealth. Meanwhile, the sound of the Hokkien word for pineapple means that people associate pineapple flowers with prosperity. Bamboo might be a good choice too, as it's thought to bring luck and it stays alive year-round. One flower seller at the market also recommends butterfly orchids, which people imagine carrying luck into the home on its wing-like petals. Or he suggests a type of daisy called the fireworks daisy, thought to symbolize the start of a dazzling new year. But he says the number one seller is always going to be the lily, because its name in Chinese calls to mind a phrase meaning that all things will go your way. In today's Taiwan by Number, we're going to take a look at some numbers related to Chinese New Year's foods. Mm. Some delicious foods, and one of the most delicious soups this time of year is Buddha jumps over a wall. Right? You guys agree? So it's a yeah. big soup full of nearly 30 ingredients cooked over about two days. You know, and there is a legend that. It was cooked near a monastery, and that one monk actually jumped over a wall because it smelled so good, and that's how it got its name. But wait, monks aren't supposed to be eating meat. That's right. That's I mean, that's why. Yeah, oh, like it, it just goodness. tempted him so oh. much. But my question for you guys is: What is the most expensive bowl a Buddha jumps over the wall in the oh, world? Man. Oh, in wow. U.S. dollars. I saw a six-dollar pot at IKEA the other day. <laughs> I think that's not the one. <laughs> I'd worry about it. And this it, thing has version. like scallops, shark fin, mm. uh, pork tendon, taro, mm. mushrooms, chicken. You wow, that's a lot. A lot of stuff in there. Sea like, cucumber. Shark fin itself, sea cucumber itself, they can fetch really high prices. I'm gonna say twelve thousand U.S. dollars. Oh my god. No. Okay. No. What a guess. What? That's a guess. No, I was thinking like、you? more maybe like under twelve、oh, hundred US dollars. Probably like maybe I'll say five hundred five hundred dollars. Make me look. No,、bad. is that too、oh, much? She's, look, she's looking at us like we're crazy. I'm not. I'm not. I wouldn't buy it. Okay. <laughs> I would pay that. To show the answer. Okay, I'm gonna reel it in. <laughs> I'm gonna say three hundred. Okay. Let's take a look at the answer. So、oh. it's 190 U.S. dollars, and I want to show you guys where it is.、Okay. This made the Guinness Book of World Records. Let's take a look at this place. This is in London. It's called Kai Mayfair, and it made it in the Guinness Book of World Records of the most expensive world. Um, bowl of soup of 2005,、uh-huh. and it's a Michelin star restaurant. Yes, of any soup. I think、Buddha、by then、Jamil. it's been surpassed, but、okay. it's a pretty cool restaurant too. So、wow. if you ever go to London, check it out. You know, I don't know. Maybe you、star. can give me a home bow, and I'll go and eat there. <laughs> More like an art gallery than a restaurant. Okay. Well, what we need is actually wealth, right?、Yes. If we're going to eat something like that. And there is one kind of food that symbolizes wealth that we eat actually all year round, but especially this time of year is dumplings. Yes. Right, and you know the story behind that is that there were people in、um, China who were having frostbite, and their ears were like 
suffering from frostbite. So there was a Chinese medical doctor who saw this, and he made very quickly out of mutton meat, um, hot chili peppers, and spices, and, and wrapped them in dough, and then boiled them, and gave them one each. He shaped them in an ear, <laughs> and he gave them one each for their ear, and hot soup, and they got better. But oh. they love the dumplings, and have been eating it ever since. Wow. So, and that's the origin of dumplings? Yeah. Well, that's a legend. Okay. So, how many years ago was that? Oh, no. Oh, I think maybe Leslie has a better shot this time. No, I'm going to get something <laughs> horrendously dumb, and Natalie's going to be like, oh, my goodness, really? <laughs> it's like, you guys are terrible at guessing. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say 2,000 years ago. Okay. 2,000 years ago? Would they even refine flour back then? Oh, oh come you know on. What? I'm going to have a little more faith in the Chinese civilization, say 3,000. Okay, let's take a look at the answer. <laughs> About over 1,800. See on the left, those are the ingots that um, mm. they're shaped after. I mean, they look like that, so people associate it with wealth. I see. Hey, see, I was pretty close there, only 200 years off. You were very off. close. <laughs> blew right past the exit on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so another thing people eat is longevity noodles. The okay. long noodles, which symbolize long life. They could be up to two feet long sometimes oh. if you really want to get serious about it. Now, what is the longest noodle in the world? The longest noodle. Yes, that made it in the Guinness Book of World Records. The longest noodle. How um, long is it? I mean, I'm gonna say. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say something. That's, is it in feet or meters? I'd say meters. <laughs> meters. Okay. I'm gonna say twenty meters. Okay, twenty meters. Oh, I've been like overshooting it the entire time. <laughs> Twenty-five. Okay, oh. well, let's take a look. Over 3,000. Three kilometers? That's three kilometers. <laughs> That's not, I don't believe So that, that was made in Henan, China in 2017. Wow. How do they do by that? By a food company. They don't do it like where they like shake no, the noodles. they had a special way of, you know, twisting it. And uh-huh. I don't know who ate it, but... Um. If it, <laughs> <laughs> who, who the, which family ate it, right? It's like three kilometers of noodles in your stomach? Oh. Oh. No, they no, wanted no, to no, make no. it into the Guinness Book of World Records. And they did. And they did. Wow. So, all from China, right? Oh, awesome. um, two Chinese foods made it. And also, next we see the fish here, right? It's a yes. lucky um, dish. And that's because it means abundance and surplus. Right, the phrase nian nian you, you. Right? right? So people eat it during the Chinese New Year. Now, how many times are you supposed to eat it? You mean? According to tradition. During the New Year? Chinese New Year holiday, yeah. How many times? Mm. Uh, once. Okay. Every day? <laughs> I'm going to go every day. Okay. Once? Okay. Wait, you saw mine. No, I'm just not right. Okay, let's take a look, look at the answer. Twice. Twice. You're supposed to eat it on Chinese New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day. Abundance year after year. So oh. if I made, so every day for two days. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that makes sense. So you got that one. I'll give you that one. Add up our answers and get the right thing. You know, teamwork makes the dream work. That's right. Okay, one more question. This is about the most luckiest fruit this time of year. It's the tangerine. Which is also behind you. Yes, you want to pull a tangerine. So the reason it's lucky is mm. because it's round, which symbolizes family unity. Mm-hmm. It's orange, which symbolizes wealth. Also, the Chinese name for it, Chen, means success. The Chinese character has the word for lucky in it, Qi. Mm. So this is a good thing to eat because it's also healthy, right? Uh-huh. 
How many calories? Oh, one? no. <laughs> uh, I think I looked it up. You looked it you up? Looked it well, up. like, I was curious. Curious, <laughs> <laughs> curious. okay. AKA cheating. <laughs> How was I supposed I'm just kidding, I'm like... kidding. You go first. I'm going to make myself look bad, like 53? Ooh, yeah. That's actually Very not far specific. off of what I was going to say. Yeah. I'm going to say 48. All right, let's take a look at the answer. 50. <gasps> 50. You guys are really Meet close. You in the middle. That's right. Very yeah. good. So have a tangerine. Okay. And that is um, our Chinese New Year's foods talent by number for the week. Okay, in today's Who Win Taiwan, our mystery person wears many hats, but one of them is philanthropist. Now, on the green buzzer, we have Andrew. All right. And red buzzer. Leslie, you guys ready? Yes. Okay, so he started his career with 10 elderly people in a rented shed. After achieving success, he and his wife decided to give 90% of their wealth away. He also donated over $600 million to the NTU Cancer Center. Back to his career, his first break was an order from Atari in 1980, making the console joystick. His company is the world's largest electronics... Is that Terry Guo? Yes. Oh. Yeah, his, uh, he made cow. the news this week, but let me tell you more about him. His company, Foxconn, is the world's largest electronics manufacturer. It makes iPads, iPhones, Kindles, Xbox, Playstations. It is the biggest private employer and exporter in China with over a million employees, one of the world's largest companies. He's met with US President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping. He ran in the KMT presidential primary, got 28% percent support. Some people wonder what would happen if he was the candidate. And Taipei Mayor Cohen offered him the top um, spot on his legislator list, but he denied that. Mm -hmm. And just this week, Forbes um, ranked his wealth and he dropped from one to four in Taiwan. One to four yeah. in Taiwan, really? He used to have 7.3 billion, now he has 6.9 billion. What happened? Because so he's no longer chairman? Maybe he used it all for the elections? No, I don't uh, know. How are you expected to live on that but much money? It's not too, I don't not know. too bad, not oh, too shabby, huh? I feel bad, yeah. Yeah, but he's giving it most of the way anyway, so. That's nice to hear. Yeah, isn't it? Yes. Oh, all right. So that's the guy who ran for president. <laughs> And that's uh, Terry Guo, and who in Taiwan for the week. Perhaps the biggest part of the Chinese New Year is feasting on wonderful food with friends and family. But how do we stay healthy during the holidays? Well, you might want to take some notes because we're going to show you a calisthenics routine that you can do with your family that was inspired by the Year of the Rat. Have a look. Instead of stuffing your face and lying around during the Lunar New Year holidays, Try some rat calisthenics. Curl your hands to your chest and then jump like this. The holidays are so noisy. Doing this will trim your waist. Make the Chinese character for safety. This means protection. Then glide over your body from top to bottom. Be agile like a rat. This move is like a deep squat. There you have it. Calisthenics for the year of the rat. Physical therapist Jin Wen Run says he has an easy one that's great for the elderly. Pretend that you're flying. The doctor says if there's any move that feels great, then do it some more. Here's to a healthy year of the rat. We hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media. And leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Happy Year of the Rat.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. President Tsai Ing-wen, just over a week ago, got elected again with 57% of the votes. She won a record over 8 million votes. But just over a year ago, during midterm elections, she had to step down as the Democratic Progressive Party chair because her party was badly defeated. Her main rival, Kaohsiung Mayor Han Gui, also became mayor of Kaohsiung at that time, riding what people called an amazing hand wave of support. So why did the tables turn and President Tsai get re-elected with so much support? Well, today we hear from visiting scholar at National Taiwan University, Bill Sharp. Sharp is also a Taiwan fellow with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He tells us why he thinks President Tsai got re-elected. Well, I think, you know, she wasn't doing all that well in the polls. I I think that's because after she became president, after she was elected, she launched into, simultaneously launched into all these um, changes that she wanted to bring about. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe she should have just focused on a few rather than a broad range. And, you know, there was about 10 uh, reforms that she was pursuing all pretty much at the same time. And the two big ones were uh, pension reform as well as labor standards reform. And frankly speaking, I don't think that she or her first premier, Lin Chuen, really had a depth of political experience to deal with such huge, obviously controversial and very sensitive reforms. And that led to her poll rating going way down to, you know, at one time it was as low as 18%. Right. And then, you know, Xi Jinping began to give her a gift. As one person said, the person who gives a gift and keeps giving. (laughs) In his January 2nd, 2019 speech, where he was more or less ordering Taiwan to accept the 92 consensus, and for the first time, linking that to the uh, one country, two systems. In other words, if you accept the 92 consensus, then you automatically accept the one country, two systems. That speech uh, had a really negative impact in Taiwan. And she responded to that very forcefully in a very well-crafted speech that was well-delivered. And her polling went up. Of course, I think the her opponent turned out to be a pretty weak one. Um, Mr. Han had several issues. I think that he lacked any kind of real uh, administrative experience. It seems that every organization he had been um, affiliated with or the manager of uh, incurred financial problems and questions about the financial management. There were issues, uh, I would call them ethical issues, about how he built a rather luxurious house on a piece of agricultural land in Yunlin County, which was supposed to be used for uh, agricultural cooperative affairs. But indeed, only one room was reserved for such purposes and then never used. He had some questions, there were some questions revolving around him about his... He made 12 big promises in uh, Kaohsiung and never fulfilled one of them, not even filling the potholes in Kaohsiung. 
I think that the, you know there were lots of questions about uh, about him. He claimed that he was the people's president, and he was just a plain humble man. But if one looks very carefully at him, he was not so humble. He engaged in some degree of real estate speculation. He criticized former presidents for having studied overseas while his daughter studies in Canada. So uh, I think his credibility continued to go down and down and down. At Tsai Ing-wen's Mindio, her um, polling numbers continued to climb. And then, of course, she did craft a very close relationship with the United States, which saw some fairly big weapon sales to Taiwan from the U.S. And I think all of this uh, added up to her victory. Why do you think Han became so popular at one point? And, you know, he became the KMT mayor, and then the KMT basically recruited him, actually, to be the presidential candidate. Why do you think he got to that level? Well, when he first began to campaign uh, for the mayor's office in, in Kaohsiung, he, he said all the right things. And I think one has to give credit to Mr. Han. He knows how to campaign. He knows how to talk to people. He knows how to talk in super simple, you might call it unsophisticated language. And that appealed to a lot of people, especially uh, he was very popular with farmers and fishermen. And his, um, his approach was very, very popular with them. His promise to make everybody rich. He talked about a southern uh, Taiwan identity, and I think that uh, resonated with a lot of people. And generally speaking, I think he was said to be um, seen to be humble, which which was very popular with a lot of people. His uh, country hick image was actually embraced by a lot of people. Well, what about um, his perceived uh, ties to China? How much do you think that hurt him? I think it hurt him a lot because there's lots of questions about what he was doing in those 68 years at uh, Beijing University. As I understand it, he was in a course that was supposed to be training future leaders of China. He no sooner got elected than he rushed off to the mainland saying it it was to sign um, fruit export deals fruit and vegetable export deals, and he did do some of that. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that he met with the head of the Taiwan Affairs Office very shortly after he got elected, I think, began to create questions in people's minds. He was very hesitant to come out and criticize uh, Xi Jinping's speech on January 2nd. Finally, it made a statement that you know uh, Taiwan would only be united with the mainland under the one country, two systems method over his dead body. But it took him quite a while to come out with that, and I think he only came out with that because of a result of public pressure. So there, there's definite um, questions about his, um, yeah, his, his relationship with China. Moreover, one of the key economic plans that he was pushing, the the self-sufficiency districts or Mm -hmm. zones, this was kind of the regeneration of a Ma-era idea. Uh, Ma called it the economic pilot zones. And the idea there was to create these import-export zones all around Taiwan to uh, really weaken 
any kind of regulatory uh, legislation, open the doors to China's exports, make credit easy, create an atmosphere where it's very easy to create businesses, open the doors to Chinese immigration. And I think people became very wary of that because, as you see, when uh, history shows, when China wants to take control of an area, they try to flood it with Chinese uh, people. If you look at Xinjiang, if you look at Tibet, if you look at Inner Mongolia, if you even if you look at Northeast China, which you know was the heart of the Manchu Empire, when China really wanted to consolidate control over it, it allowed Chinese Han Chinese to go there. And one can look at Hong Kong. You see all the influx of Chinese mainland population in Hong Kong. It, it seems that this is designed to further mainland control over Hong Kong and also has a very upward push on real estate prices when you see $12 million condominiums at Repulse Bay and the price got so high because of the influx of Chinese money. So um, how much do you think China was the main factor in this election? Uh, I think it was um, I think it was a huge factor. Um, I think there were other factors too. I think that uh, Han's character was a factor. Um, I think that Tsai Ing-wen's emphasis on sovereignty and protection of democracy, especially her relationship with young people, was probably the overall deciding factor. Han's folks uh, or supporters were mostly older people. Tsai had a very close relationship with younger people, uh, a relationship that uh, Han tried to create but just couldn't do it. But what's interesting about the demographics is actually the middle age is the largest group and then we, you know, 40 to 59 and then the elderly and then the young people. So it's actually, um, you know, if we look at the demographics, Han Perhaps if you just look at the age, perhaps he should have got more support. So mm. how do you explain that? I think that overall he had a big lack of credibility. He made so many promises. He, he, he was coming out with one idea after another, trying to gin up his poll rating. He was going to make it easy for folks to study in the United States. Well, that idea didn't work. So he came up with the next idea, the next idea, the next idea. Mm-hmm. And it lacked any kind of credibility. What about President Tsai? How do you think she performed in her first term? Well, I think that, you know, when she first ran for the presidency in 2016, I shouldn't say the first time, but in 2016, when she ran for the presidency, she wrote this book, I believe it was called Xiaoying, and I remember reading it, and she was really emphasizing her relationship with young people and the need to create a new economic base for Taiwan. And she saw her uh, 5 plus 2 innovative industrial development program as the key to creating a new economic base for Taiwan's economy, an economy that would take the emphasis off of contract manufacturing and that would create uh, high-paying jobs, the kind of jobs that folks could support a family on without much difficulty. She wanted to create high-value products and, and then export those. Her plan, uh, the 5 plus 2, had um, several components, as the name suggests, include biomedicine, 
the creation of green industries, intelligent machinery, the creation of an Asia Silicon Valley, a new agriculture and, and a circular economy in addition to the defense and aerospace industry. I think because she got her attention off of the 5 plus 2 because of the other reforms that she was pushing. The 5 plus 2, I think it's a work in progress and that uh, she really needs to refocus her attention on the achievement of 5 plus 2 uh, for the benefit of her party in 2024 and, and for her own legacy. Can you, I mean, can you tell us what you think she needs to do in her second term to yeah, have a good legacy and also continue letting the DPP be, be supported by the people. Right. Like I just said, I think she really needs to push through this uh, 5 plus 2. She's got a lot of political capital now. She didn't have much political capital before the election. She won the election by gaining uh, over 8 million votes. So, as you know, that was a record number of votes. So she's got to use this to push through her 5 plus 2. Plus, if she has this this, uh, really great relationship with America, she's got to really develop that further in order to get a free trade agreement or bilateral investment treaty with the U.S. Since she does have this capital now, she has the means, I think, to uh, agree to to work out a, a solution to America's opposition to an FTA or bilateral investment treaty. You think that they, they would? Because I know that one of the main issues is the pork Right. Parts That's what issue, I'm getting to. Chemicals. Do you think that they would be lenient on that issue? Well, I think if she wants an FTA or a bilateral investment treaty, she probably has no choice. That is visiting scholar at National Taiwan University, Bill Sharp. He's also a Taiwan fellow with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Join me next week as we continue the conversation about what President Tsai Ing-wen needs to do in her second term. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste and the destination Treasure Hill, Taipei, the 1960s. The settlement of Treasure Hill is a place that plays by its own rules. The network of paths and staircases that connects everything together winds as it pleases, defying ideas like planning and grids. And the place also seems to be resisting, pushing back to keep out the city that surrounds it. When you come here, you're still in the heart of Taipei, 
But inside this maze of concrete bungalows surrounded by green, that's easy to forget. Treasure Hill stands alone on a hillside looking out over a river, a world unto itself. The place has a romantic, bohemian feel to it, and so it probably won't surprise you to learn that today, Treasure Hill is an artist's colony. But that's not how this place started out. Treasure Hill's place in Taiwan's history is in an era where an improvised hillside community like this might be overlooked and left to develop on its own. This week, Wu Dakun of the Taipei Artist Village takes us back in time to watch how this unusual piece of Taipei grew. The hill by the riverside here was known for a long time before it became today's Treasure Hill. The Buddhist temple that still guards this place is said to date back several hundred years to the time of the Qing Dynasty. Treasure Hill's position, right beside the Xinjian River, made it a great source of water, and during the Japanese colonial period, early in the 20th century, this stretch of river supplied Taipei's early water system. In the run-up to World War II, though, this place began to be associated with the military, an association that's still there today. During those years, the Japanese authorities stationed an anti-aircraft emplacement here. Mr. Wu says that traces from this period, like an air raid shelter, can still be seen around here if you know where to look. But it was only after World War II that this place became a community. Mr. Wu says that despite the end of the war, Taiwan was still on a military footing during these post-war years. After the war, control over Taiwan had been given to the nationalist KMT government based in China. But just a few years after the handover, this new government found itself overwhelmed fighting Chinese communists as the Chinese Civil War heated up. Finally, the entire government was forced to retreat to Taiwan. From this base, so recently taken from Japanese control, the KMT hoped to one day retake mainland China. And this dream, coupled with the threat of communist invasion, kept the government preoccupied. Many soldiers and families had fled to Taiwan with the government, and some of them settled in Treasure Hill. The veterans decided to stay. Unlike the government housing provided to many of these refugee soldiers, every one of the homes on Treasure Hill was an exercise in DIY construction. The homes were built well. They're still standing today, after all. And while these houses were never legal, the government had other things to worry about, and the dwellings stayed put under a tacit understanding. Meanwhile, by the 1960s, an influx of people had begun arriving in Taipei from the center and south of Taiwan, looking for work and opportunities in the big city. In Treasure Hill, these new arrivals from the countryside and an assortment of others found a place where they could build their own home and live inexpensively. Conditions here were never great, even quite basic, but there were always people who were willing to set down roots here. In the 1970s, this squatter settlement was reaching its peak size, 
the cluster of houses we see today was in place, and the government either couldn't or wouldn't take notice of this community. For a time, people just left the place alone, to be as it was. Then, in 1980, the riverfront area here was declared a water conservation zone, and the tangle of buildings that had risen up here was slated to be torn down. Again, at points during the early and mid-1990s, the community was threatened with demolition. But both times, the pushback from residents was fierce. And the second time around, they had allies. Many residents, it turned out, were simply people who couldn't afford to move anywhere else. And at the same time, some others began to look around and see a sort of beauty in what the residents had created, something worth preserving. No less than Taiwan's top school got involved, with people from National Taiwan University's Graduate Institute of Building and Planning coming over to do surveys and other work at the site. Social enterprises also jumped on board to lend a hand, and so there was a coalition on the resident side. A settlement would have to be reached one way or another. That settlement was gradually reached in the 2000s. It was announced that the place would be turned into a space for the arts. And in 2003, a Finnish architect who'd taken an interest in the site was invited to help. His vision for the site has preserved much of its original character. And Mr. Wu says that the original residents can still recognize the place as home. These residents were not simply evicted, but given the option to take compensation money and move elsewhere, or, if they wished, to stay and live among the new community of artists. There wouldn't be as much compensation money, but all of the buildings were fixed up nicely. Since the Taipei Artists' Village moved in in 2010, 20 of the households that elected to stay are still here, living in the same places they've lived for decades. He says these households put together account for around 60 people. A Taipei Times article from the project's start in 2003 suggests that some of the residents were confused or resentful about the changes. But Mr. Wu says that these days, everyone has reached an understanding and coexists quite well here. Resident artists come from all over Taiwan and across the world, putting vacant buildings to use as studio spaces. Mr. Wu says they work in a variety of fields, including visual arts, but also other areas like metalworking and performing arts. There are living quarters available for visitors from around the world, and the artist's village also runs an experimental school. But the old-time residents who decided to stay, those military men and others who built this community, have not been forgotten. They're an integral part of this community, and they're invited to get involved too, to participate in oral histories, forums, and performances. What the government once viewed as a nuisance is now appreciated, even showing up in Guides to Taipei as a recommended place to visit a big reversal of fortunes in a few years. But in addition to bringing in the tourists, the artist's village has preserved Treasure Hill and allowed those who started it all to continue their lives here peacefully, free from threats of demolition. The Treasure Hill community may be historic, 
But what about the place makes it significant? What part of history is it meant to represent? And what stories is it meant to tell visitors? For Mr. Wu, this is something of a time capsule where you can see a society in a stage of urbanization. At the same time, the special architecture and the fact that it's been left standing also tells a modern Taiwanese story of citizens making their voices heard and choosing to preserve part of their city. And then there's the act of revitalizing a space, of taking something old and giving it a new use. This is something Taiwan's gotten good at in recent years. In these three ways, this place reflects the story of modern Taipei. The scattered hillside dwellings that were once a symbol of post-war disarray now invite people to explore them. But they're still as proudly independent as they've ever been. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. According to the Chinese Zodiac, this coming year is the year of the rat, which is the first in a cycle of 12 years. And that's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. Okay, so you have 60 seconds to tell us what all that means. Okay. Ready? Yes. Go. All right. If you look at the Hongbao, the lucky red envelopes that people are giving each other this year, you'll notice that many of them feature rats and some even also have cats. But where are the cats in the Chinese zodiac? Well, if you look at the 12 animal years, you'll see that the rat is first and there is no cat. So how could the smallest animal possibly come first? Well, legend has it that the Jade Emperor held a party and invited all the animals and he based the order of the zodiac on the order in which they arrived. Now, the animals had to cross a river in order to get there. And as you know, cats and rats, they hate water. So the rat tricked the ox into giving him a ride, and the cat decided to go along as well. But then the rat pushed the cat into the water, and then just before they arrived at the party, the rat jumped down ahead of the ox, becoming the first sign in the zodiac. And that's why cats and rats are mortal enemies to this day. Nice job, Andrew. <laughs> Perfect timing. Thank you. So this is the Chinese Zodiac. What do people say about people born in the year of the rat? That's a great question. I actually want to show you some famous rats. I hope they won't take offense. <laughs> uh, you can see Scarlett Johansson. We've got The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, of course, Pope Francis, as you can tell by that picture, Rosa Parks, uh, and Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook fame. Uh, now, what are these people like? You can decide whether you believe this or not, but they're said to be clever quick thinkers, successful. I think all these people are definitely successful, uh, but content with living the peaceful and quiet life. Mm, I don't think that's true. I don't true. think they do. <laughs> um, also, they're said to be wasteful and quick to temper, but also creative and honest, ambitious and generous. That's very interesting. I wonder if they know that they are rats. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you should ask them. I'm not going to ask them. <laughs> 
So if you want to know what Chinese zodiac animal you are, you can check out our show notes below. And that is our Taiwan Explained for the week. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.